Welcome to Vantage Point Podcast, a podcast brought to you by NWR Communications and 92 Studio. This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. In this episode, we're joined by Phil Hodgson, Calix's CEO. Calix is listed on the ASX under the ticker CXL. The journey of Calix is a fascinating one, which we've worked with Calix since it completed its pre-IPO in 2018. In this episode, recorded at the end of last year, we hear about the platform technology that has Calix positioned to make a meaningful difference to decarbonizing the world in lime and cement industries, green steel, and material processing with a lithium joint venture with ASX-listed Pilbara Minerals. Phil is a straight-up guy and one of the good guys in the industry. Subsequent to the recording of this podcast, there was some unexpected news with a site change as a part of the scale-up of Lilac 2. It's fair to say the stock was hammered, but with an announcement from Heidelberg Cement reaffirming its commitment released just yesterday, it's game on and all set for a big 2024. We hope you enjoy. G'day and welcome back to our latest episode of Vantage Point, where we get behind the leading minds of mostly listed companies. Uh, and I think we're really privileged today to have with us Phil Hodgson, the company's CEO. Uh, Calix has been around uh, for a long, long time. Um, it's a company that I've worked with for, for more than six years. Um, it's been a pleasurable experience where um, you know, we talk about on this podcast actually you know, getting behind the people and, and what runs the business. People behind Calix are, are the most genuine that I've come across in terms of you know, if they can't do something, they're not going to tell you that they're going to do it, which uh, a lot of CEOs uh, fall, into, fall into the trap of you know, in terms of over-expectations. Um, but it's a company that's you know, pioneering sustainability solutions across a number of industries, which um, you know, in some eyes, you know, people are talking about it, but you know, it's one of Australia's hidden secrets, hopefully not hidden for, for too much longer, but um, it's, a, it's a fascinating story in terms of, you know, founded in 2007, uh, the company did a, a pre-IPO round six years ago, um, where Thorny Investment Group, one of the investors, they're still a substantial shareholder today, uh, Alex Weislitz Group, which says a lot about Thorny, but probably more so about Calix in terms of, again, that under-promising and over-delivering. Uh, the company listed um, just over five years ago, raised $8 million at 53 cents. Uh, it's always been very uh, meticulous around its use of funds in terms of capital raisings. You know, it's a, a cash-burning business, you know, if you take away the water business, which we'll go into. Uh, but raised $17 million at $2 um, in 2021, I think it was. Uh, and then in 2023, or so just over a year ago, November uh, 2022, raised just over $80 million, uh, just over $4 a share. So there's that uh, careful um, capital structure uh, consideration, which you can see across the journey. And, and I think what they've delivered today um, is testament to that as well. So Phil, thanks so much for joining us today and, and looking forward to the chat. So um, before... We sort of get to yeah the business itself. Um, I think a story that many haven't heard before, and it's one that I heard a long, long time ago. And I always thought if the company was successful, it'd make a, a pretty good, a pretty good book or a pretty good movie. But just talk to us maybe first around, around the founders of the business and and just sort of the origins yeah, around around that the founding story. Yeah, sure, Simon. It's uh, it's it's a one of those great Aussie sort of technology startup stories. It's a combination of a chap who was a, a mining engineer, a bit of a knockabout guy who had the, the original concept of a new type of kiln or furnace, a new way to heat stuff up, and uh, combined with the sort of background of a, of a, of a scientist mm. in Mark Skeets. Uh, and so Connor Hawley and Mark 
joined and founded the company in 2006, I think, off the back of this idea about a new type of kilnal furnace. And, uh, and so uh, they started out with very little capital. Uh, they built uh, the original kiln or furnace to test it. and, that and, and is that in back, Bacchus Marsh? Uh, it's lying in Bacchus Marsh now, but it was actually originally built in Jacob's Well uh, and erected in Jacob's Well. It was a little tower with little gas burners and used to have to run up a series of stairs and, and pour material down in buckets down this thing. Uh, to test how it heated up as it as the material sort of fell through this tube, uh, and and that was enough to sort of prove the very basic concept. And off the back of that, uh, they were able to raise uh, some early capital from Washington H. Solpats, uh, and and start to build bigger and bigger versions. Uh, and so uh, from a backyard bucket experiment. Uh, ultimately, uh, the company was was born, and um, yeah, we can sort of go into the the various periods of history as we yeah, as we go through. There's many chapters, as you know, Simon. But I think uh, the chapter that we're most <laughs> interested in is, is just around. Um, I'm not sure the exact year, but basically, the company was dead. Yes, look, I think many companies go through valleys, a valley of death, as they call it. I think we've been trekking trekking through the Himalayas because we've been through many valleys, uh, but we're we're finally climbing Everest. We're out of the last valley, uh, but uh, the biggest valley of death that I experienced uh, was soon after I joined, and in fact, um, around two days after I joined the company, I had a call from our CFO Darren Charles, who's still with us. And Darren said, Phil, I think we've got a bit of a problem. Uh, I found out that there's been an overspend on the project that hasn't been reported. And this is the, the project building our first commercial uh, scale version. And uh, the project's two million overspent and we've got two million in the bank. And so we were close to being technically insolvent mm-hmm. that first year as the CEO. In fact, two days into my job as CEO. So, so we had 57 board meetings in the space of a year. Uh, we nearly tipped the company into administration three times. Mm. Um, and ultimately, uh, how we got through that first year was uh, a lot of sacrifice by staff and management. Uh, I sold my house, uh, you know, and and um, so when you say when you say you sold your house, you sold your house to put money into the company and keep put, it alive. Yeah, yeah, so so put money in the company, uh, salary sacrificed. Yeah. So so I dropped to to forty percent of my sign on salary, um, and all of the execs did similar. So, but it was a it was a, everyone uh, just Mark, put Mark, one of the founders, he also mortgaged his house to yep. prop it up. So so. Everyone, everyone put it put in real hard, and and as I say, it was touch and go, um, and the, it, it was not an easy situation because the company had a whole lot of debt at the time mm. as well. Uh, it had a convertible note, which um, was a convenient way to raise capital mm. at the time, but uh, that convertible note was particularly nasty. Uh, nasty. Uh, and so, in fact, if I look back on my, upon my whole career, even since that time, the deal I'm most proud of mm. is converting that convertible note to equity and persuading the note, note holders to do that. And we could only do that by taking the company to the brink of, of collapse. That was like literally the last hours. That was that was it was like a second to midnight in yeah. the classic sort of, uh, and and we had to stare them down, and uh, we uh, they backed down and yeah. agreed to convert to where to equity and then new equity, including from us, 
uh, came into the company at that and time. All the staff at that time as well invested. Correct. Yeah. Every single staff member, you know, and and you know, sure there was there was some who was able to put more than others, but it, it was incredible. And yeah. and so you have everyone uh, of a very small core team there who invested in the company and its future. And uh, at that time, I think we raised three million bucks, and I think the post money valuation was 10 million yeah. <laughs> at, that, at that time so that's 2014 but yeah. again but again when you look to now what's that you know almost 10 years ago mm. um there was nothing really built no i i, I think we'd 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 just completed the the first uh sort of full-scale calcina for magnesite uh we'd done some tests on it and um it looked as if it was working well mm. Uh, but we had established zero markets, really, in terms mm. of uh, any sort of revenue. And even the business model was unclear at that point in time mm. because we were initially looking at making a magnesium-based building product mm. uh, and we sort of had this side hustle called a magnesium-based water business. Um, and so the company really needed to to set a strategic path a little different to that uh, mm. and... Um, of course, the decarbonisation at that point mm. in time was it, did, it, it basically didn't exist. I mean, a lot of a lot of decarbonisation was talked about, mm. but in terms of actual doing and in actual investing in decarbonisation technologies, it was it was it was like a desert. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, it was a, it was a big leap of faith by all of our staff members uh, and and the management and and our directors, all the board mm. members put in too. Big leap of faith in, in in the future of the company and especially around its decarbonisation ultimate strategy, mm. which, uh, yeah, as we'll cover off, no doubt, uh, took a while to come to fruition, but uh, certainly has now. It, uh, so it's uh, three million bucks on $10 million valuation all the way to, to a billion, billion plus at, at its peak. Mm. Um, it's quite a journey. If we can just sort of step back and go through you know, the different lines of business and, and really the sort of core technology platform yep. and sort of how that evolved from yeah, the magna side, you know, doing the water and whatnot yeah. um, to, hey, this thing could... Could help lime and cement. Could yeah, so so I mean, as I mentioned before, it's just a new type of kiln mm. or furnace, a new way to heat stuff up, if you like. And, and I usually uh, uh, have a little toilet roll. I, I should have my prop with me today, Simon. I can bring bring one out. But I'll go to the toilet and get you one. <laughs> go to the toilet, grab me one. It's a great prop because you can flat pack it yeah. into your pack and and bring it out and uh, very flashy. Uh, but basically, I, I demonstrate this with a toilet roll, and, and all the toilet roll represents is a is a tube. Mm. It's a rather large steel tube. The biggest ones were built are 1.8 metres in diameter and over 30 metres high. Uh, and we heat this tube from the outside. We can heat it with whatever energy you like. There can be flames, there can be electrical elements, and 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 so we're energy agnostic. And that's that's a big difference in the kiln world. Kiln world, most kilns are designed specifically for certain energy sources. We're energy agnostic, mm. which is great because as the industry electrifies evolves, and evolves, we can just, uh, our core technologies moves with it. The second thing is uh, whatever we heat goes down the middle. Uh, it just needs to be a small particle size, and that's basically just drop down the tube. Uh, imagine dropping a, a lump of flour to the floor and watching it float down. That's all that's happening inside our tube. These particles are just falling slowly over 20 to 30 seconds, and we've heated the walls of the tube to over 1,000 degrees centigrade, so they're glowing red hot, and that radiative heat into the particles is what does the heating. So, as I say, just a new way to heat stuff up, but why do it that way? Mm. So... Let's have a look at cement and lime as uh, one of the first lines of business. Um, cement 
uh, is made from limestone. And limestone is nearly half by weight CO2. And so when the cement lime industries heat that up, it releases the CO2 out of the rock. Mm. Uh, And they're responsible for over 8% of global CO2. And over half of that is coming from the rock. Mm. So uh, no matter how much they electrify their process down the track, they're still going to deal with Mm. half those emissions. Now, with our kiln, you can imagine that tube, as the limestone particles are falling through, it's releasing that CO2. That CO2 is not mixed or lost to the atmosphere. It's not mixed. So it just basically comes out the top of the tube is a pretty pure stream. Uh, And out the bottom comes the normal product. Uh, And so what the kiln represents, you can renewably Mm. power it, of course, but it also directly separates the CO2 that's coming from the limestone. And so it's a way to mitigate and drop the CO2 intensity of cement and lime substantially uh, and ultimately eliminate it. Um, And so for the cement and lime industries, which are are one of those really tough industries Mm. to to deal with the CO2, uh, the kiln just represents a different way to heat up that mitigates the CO2. Simple as that. Mm. Um, And... You mentioned some of the other lines of business we're looking at. I mean, what's exciting here is heating stuff up Mm. is actually what happens in most mineral processing applications. At some stage, you've got to heat it up. Uh, And all of that is ripe for electrification. Um, And let's take iron and steel making, Mm. for example. You know, uh, Australia, nearly half our total income comes from exporting iron ore. And uh, that iron ore actually is unsuitable for an electric arc furnace. Now, a lot of people talk about the green steel heading down the electric arc furnace route. Uh, now, that's a big existential threat to Australia as, as, mm. as a country. Um, so what can we do? Well, if we actually make a green iron here and export the green iron into steel making, then that could be a way to value add mm. here and keep us relevant exactly. in the international market. Yeah. Um, and so we go back to my toilet roll, we go back to our tube. If we fill that tube with hydrogen, and we don't lose that hydrogen mm. to the furnace or the atmosphere. It's just contained in the tube. We heat that tube and put iron ore in the top. We can convert that to iron. Mm. What the hydrogen does is it sucks the oxygen off the iron ore. Iron ore is basically mm. rust. That's why it looks brown. Yeah. Uh, so it sucks the oxygen off the iron ore uh, and makes water. Mm. And the water and the hydrogen mixture, any unused hydrogen comes out the top and out the bottom comes green iron. Mm. So as long as you use renewable electrons to make your hydrogen and you use renewable electrons to heat our tube, you can make a green iron. Yeah. And so it's a it's a way to use the abundant renewable energy resources we have in this country mm. combined with an existing, you know, major export to add value on shore and make a green iron. That's yeah. So they they're just two sort of examples of, you know, the applications of the one core technology. You know, obviously we're we're doing a project with Pilbara Minerals for uh, for for processing spodumene at the mine site to produce a lithium salt. Spodumene's the source of over half the world's lithium mm. today. So if we can use uh, the mine site to actually uh, extract the lithium on site using renewable power, we can leave the 94% waste that's mm. currently exported as spodumene. We can have that at the mine site to help rehabilitate the mine. This is like the equivalent of onshoring. Onshoring. Similar with uh, iron ore as well. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And so just with those examples, I guess, Simon, you can start to see that the sort of different possibilities you have with the one core technology, you know, as we said before, homegrown Aussie technology, but, um, you know, very serious quite, applications. Quite absolutely. And just um, diving into the green steel, you know, Zesty, um, how does that fit into, you know, the iron ore process or production um, sort of circuit? Is it a huge disruption 
for them to have to you know, reconfigure all their sort of different things? Or how's that sort of look? Yeah, so at the moment, uh, when you mine iron ore, mm-hmm. uh, uh, as with any mining operation, uh, you, you're basically pulling the ore out of the ground uh, and you're crushing it down to make it uh, big rocks into usable lumps that you send offshore. And in doing that, uh, as you crush stuff down, you create dust yeah. or fines. Uh, and at the moment, a lot of that is dust of fines are either waste or mm-hmm. very low value. And this is not just iron ore. This is spodumene. Yeah. This is a lot of other industries as well. So what's perfect for our kiln are those small particles. We love small particles. Mm. And so what's currently waste or low value is actually right in our sweet spot in terms of processing to a useful product. Uh, And so with an iron ore uh, extraction process that's Mm. happening today in Australia, it'd just be an add-on that uses their waste material to Mm. make a green iron. So in fact, it's not disruptive or anything to their process. It's it's a neat add-on that would use up some of their waste. Yes, it's not not gonna cause an almighty uh, sort of circuit breaker that then they have to reconfigure mine sites and all those sort of different things. It's it's reasonably straightforward. Yep, yep. Um, and and just in terms of the funding, so yeah, we talk about yeah mineral processing with Pilbara, um, lime and cement, lilac, green steel, zesty. Um, yeah, and then there's the biotech, um, yeah, marine coating. There's a, a whole bunch of different uh, different sectors which. Yeah, early on the the market sort of said that you know we were crazy, you know, just just nail one. Mm. Um, but I think we've sort of demonstrated that you know we actually, um, particularly yeah, broadening the team and focus. Yep. Um, and you're actually executing. Yeah, there was no Pilbara, um, yeah, materials processing. You know, two or three years ago, sort of yeah. thing. it was a pipe dream. Um, but yeah, now it's um, yeah a, a fully commercialised or fully yeah, formed joint venture, which. Um, yeah, is, is a serious validation point. But how, how do you sort of look at, yeah, if you can just sort of talk us through the, yeah, A, a the revenue model, but yep. B, are you building these things? You know, is it going to cost a whole heap of money in terms of CapEx for, for Calyx and its balance sheet? How does that sort of look? Yeah, it's, 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 it's a really good question. And, and it's something that we spent quite some time thinking really heavily about. Um, where does a, a, a technology that is applicable across multiple different mm-hmm. areas get applied as quickly as possible and how does it get applied as quickly as possible and the other thing is what I love about say the software industry is you design and build something once and then you get multiple revenues coming in from that and so a licensing or royalty model was always attractive to us Um, and so as a tech company that's 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 nirvana that that's where you want to take your, your business can, model. You fully scale. Well. You fully scale yeah. and all those sorts of things. So build it once, have multiple parties pay you. That's the license royalty model. We had a lot of pushback on that. Yeah. Not only from people who were asking to be part of that, mm-hmm. as in pay us a royalty or license, but also from the industry in general because those sorts of models um, have, have uh, we've never seen it, for example, mm-hmm. in the cement and lime industry. We've never seen a technology model that was operated on a royalty or yeah, license. Okay. Um, so uh, the traditional engine, big engineering houses like the yeah. Tiss and Krups, yeah. they ultimately were forced by the cement industry into uh, what we call the OEM model, yeah. which is they, they're building the bits of kit and then selling it to the cement plant. And they're always loggerheads over how much margin mm-hmm. Tiss and Krupp can make for that. Uh, for that piece of kit, for example. It's a race to the bottom. It's a race to the bottom, absolutely. And so we never wanted to play in that space. Um, And we felt we had the technical strength and the technical moat, if you like, uh, to not play in that space. Um, And the 
interesting thing was, despite the fact that it was our model for a while, we were only able to really nail it and prove it when we signed that license agreement with Heidelberg Materials. Global perpetual license, they've got to pay us a license fee per tonne of CO2 mm. separated. Uh, that, that took you know, the initial discussions with that type of uh, license model started in 2015. Okay, so uh, and in earnest for at least three years. Mm. So, you know, it took us a while to to punch that through, and we got it. Um, and since then, uh, in pretty quick succession, we got the next one through, yeah. which is uh, the application of the technology in direct air capture. But it's a, a lime uh, based mm. uh, um, sort of um, uh, application of the technology. So there's two global perpetual licenses in place now. So we like to think of our business model as validated. Uh, yeah. Now, what does that allow us to do? As soon as we get a license type arrangement, we don't care who builds the plants. Mm. And so um, in terms of capital required to deploy the tech, and, and when I think about that, and I think that to solve the issue in cement and lime, you know, a full-scale version of this plant has to be built twice a week from now to 2050, okay? That's how much deployment has has to take to place hit, uh, to, to hit to hit to hit to see the CO two targets yeah. for the cement industry that they've set for themselves. Mm. Imagine imagine if we had to have that on our balance yeah. sheet to go and build. No, uh, it'd, it'd, be it'd, dead, it'd be exactly right. Um, and so, in putting this licensed business model in place, uh, it's the cement companies yeah. who who and and to be honest, that's where it should be. Yeah. You know, those guys have big procurement muscle. Mm. Uh, and all they're building uh, are structures, towers with our tube in it and the peripherals. It's nothing like some super high-tech stuff. We can give the cement company a blueprint. Mm. They take the blueprint, use their procurement muscle to drive down the cost of the capital and deployment. And particularly if they need to deploy so many of them, they're going to get a, a decent price. On exactly them. right. Yeah. And, and what that allows, what, that's great for us because... Ultimately, that drives down the cost of our technology yeah. at the same time because yeah. it's it's really all tied up in the capital, um, and so we knew that that business model uh, was ultimately going to be the best way forward for us, uh, and so that's the way uh, we, we've cemented that business model now in, in Lilac and rolling pardon that out. Pun. Pardon the pun, <laughs> uh, and uh, and rolling that out, and look, you know, in other large commodity industries. Mm. Where, where wide scale and rapid deployment is required to decarbonise, uh, it's a very similar business model that we're looking at for, say, iron and steel, yeah. for example. Yeah. yeah. No, it makes perfect sense. And without trying to get into too deep into the science or specifics, but if you could just sort of take us on the journey around the lime and cement producers about, you know, almost like the carrot and the stick, hmm. you know, the penalties and the, the concessions around carbon credits and these sort of things. Yep. And what it sort of looks like, A, what it looks like in terms of carbon credit price, yeah, it sort of can only go one way, really. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then on the flip side, yeah, obviously we've got a royalty on that, um, yeah, the, the carbon price, how that sort of benefits Calix in terms of, yeah, the, the economic model. Yeah, so... Um in terms of the, the, the license or yep. royalty fee we've struck, uh, it is a percentage of, say, the value of the CO2 that the technology yep. separates. Uh, in heirloom, for example, we've got a three US dollar per tonne floor. Mm. And as the value of CO2 goes up, if yep. there's penalties or, or incentives around that CO2, uh, then there's room for that to move up. Yeah. Okay. Uh, currently, it's set at around three US bucks as the floor, which is about 3% of yep. the 85 US dollar incentive, which is available in the US for CO2 uh, capture. Um, and so that's where that, that 
sort of license fee uh, was struck. Um, in terms of the overall economics, safe for the counterparty, uh, you know, a cement producer, for example, uh, at the moment um, in Europe, they're having to go on market and start to buy CO2 permits. So some time ago, they were issued a certain amount of free permits uh, related to their historic production. Which were an asset on their balance sheet. And, it, and that was a big asset on yeah. their balance sheet. And a lot of them sold it, by the yeah. way. Uh, a lot of them sold all those free permits uh, and, and crashed the CO2 mm-hmm. price. Um, and so uh, it was it was an interesting that the EU then turned around uh, and said, oh, by the way, those free issued permits, uh, next year you're getting 2.2% less. And the year after that, 2.2% less. And by the way, it's going to keep coming down. And so suddenly... Uh, all of the cement companies and major CO2 emitters in Europe are facing a, a smaller, smaller and smaller ceiling on their emissions mm-hmm. because their free issued permits are coming yep. down. Uh, so to maintain, if they're going to maintain their CO2 intensity, they've got, uh, you know, they've got to shut plants down or they're going to go on market to mm-hmm. buy the CO2 permits. There's a freely traded market in the EU yeah. on that. And the price of that CO2 is now you know, of the order of 90 to 100 uh, euro it per like, ton. It was like under 10 euro when they were selling when it. We, when we listed yeah. Calix, I remember the CO2 price was hovering between 3 and 5 euros per ton. Uh, should have should have invested in carbon credits as opposed to Calix. Yeah, thirty times. <laughs> well, yeah. So uh, so it's uh, it was only as it's only as short as three years ago mm. that um, we saw uh, companies start to commit to net zero CO2. Countries start mm. to commit to net zero CO2, and this is you know by twenty fifty. But those commitments were not in place well, more than three years ago, yeah. and so suddenly. Uh, as these companies realised, uh, oh shit, uh, yeah. we better go uh, cover our liabilities because these represent hundreds of millions of liabilities to cement companies just in Europe. Mm. Um, they better go cover those. Uh, so they went out and they actually had to start buying the CO2. So suddenly there's a demand for CO2 uh, permits up, yeah. and the price goes up. Yeah. Uh, and so that's how that mechanism operates. And so you can see the royalty we make, which is a percentage of that, uh, is just a small part of the overall sort of cost of mitigation versus cost of going to buy a permit in a cement in a cement facility. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's other subsidies that can help bring that down to help a, c- a cement plant transition. Yeah. But ultimately, the, the EU will wipe out free permits altogether. So every tonne of CO2 you emit as a cement plant in Europe, yeah. uh, you've got to go and either mitigate it or buy a permit. Mm. What's that going to do to a price of a permit by 2030? It's you know, scary. it's uh, and so 2030 is not far away. It's not now, far so. away. Yeah. And and so with the EU introducing the cross-border adjustment ne- mechanism, which is like a tariff for CO2 yeah. for any goods go- coming into Europe, um, then op- as that uh, becomes fully operational, they will eliminate. Uh, free issued permits to the to the to the local industry, mm. so uh, yeah, it's going to be. It's a, it's a decent stick coming. It, it's a decent stick coming. Mm. And, and just in terms of from a, a Calix economic or you know, sort of revenue perspective, and again, it should be you know, super high margin, right? Because it's a capital light model and it's a royalty fee. Um, how does that sort of look across? Yeah, you know, even just a subset of the market in terms of you know cement and lime production. Yeah, you know, call it a baseline of you know two or three euro per ton or whatever you want to pick. Yep. Um, just sort of conceptualise that about how big the opportunity is. Yeah. So um, if I have a look at uh, uh, effectively just the process emissions mm. from the cement and lime industries, what I mean by that is the stuff coming out of the rock, yep. just the stuff coming out of the rock. 
today, 1.4 billion tonnes a year. Uh, and that's projected to increase as, mm. as you know, obviously uh, this, the world urbanises yeah. and, and more and more cement and concrete is used. So 1.4 billion tonnes a year. So uh, so as a total addressable market, if we're three US bucks a tonne mm. royalty minimum, uh, then obviously you can multiply one by the other to, to have the total addressable market available yeah. for our technology just, just in cement and lime. Um, that excludes direct air capture, which mm. is predicted to be almost just as big a market. Mm. So it's a multi-billion sort of opportunity at very low resource and yeah. capital requirement, which again is why we really like the license and royalty model. And so just in terms of challenges on the business, how, how do you deal with, you know, when you're dealing with you know, a top three you know, global cement player, um, yeah, the, the ASX wants to know what are the targets and what are you sort of aiming to do and mm. and if you don't give them that then they won't buy the stock and, and if you do give them that you run the risk of you know, a potential counterparty sort of holding over your head that you know, yep. you're going to deliver this by June 30 and yeah, we're going to pull it back and we're not going to pay you as much. How, how have you sort of seen that um, and how much of a challenge is that? Yeah, look, it's a big challenge because you know you, you've, you put in what you think are your yeah. reasonable uh, goals for which the year. Which have had a, an extremely good track record of hitting, right? And look, we, we, we have, but yeah. uh, it's it's funny that uh, a lot of those goals are hit, you know, maybe a month or two after yeah. after year-end, uh, especially with things like license agreements. Yeah. There's no doubt if you're putting in the public domain that you, you're expecting X number of license agreements to be done by a certain date. Public to spot, of course they do. Yeah. Of course they do. And anyone who use any of that in, in commercial Leverage. negotiation. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, we're, you know, we've been very firm uh, and clear that we will not do a deal at any price, yeah. just because we've given a bit of guidance around uh, a number or, or a date. Um, we are, we, we will only do the best deal for our shareholders mm-hmm. as and when those deals get done. And, and so that m- might mean pushing short, stuff short back, term, yeah, short no, term pushing stuff short, back. And short term pay on the share price. Exactly. Long term gain. Yeah. Exactly. No. And look, I think it was your term, yeah. you know, uh, the sugar hit. I'm yeah. not interested in the sugar hit. No, we're, we're here for the longer term value. And, and be, you can see the scale, size and scale of yeah. these markets. You can see where a cent or two might make a difference in terms of the the, the ultimate the option, rate you might yeah. strike. Um, and so, yeah, we're, we're, there's no way uh, that... that we're going to allow ourselves to be pushed around too much and sell something for under the value that we need it to be mm. uh, in the best longer-term interest of the shareholders. So um, so we, we're adopting a, an approach where um, we're not going to put specific a number yeah. or a specific licence agreement through. And I think particularly now that you've actually validated and demonstrated that Correct. you do have global players um, yeah, in, in the background. Um, and just in terms of, yeah, so Lilac, you know, Lime and Cement, um, yeah, it's had significant funding. It's been you know, in the pipe for a long, long time. Mm. Um, Carbon Direct, you know, Boston Group, I think they are. Yep. Um, or US Group. The US, uh, New um, York. Uh, what was yeah. that, 2021? 21. 21. Yeah. Um, invested at, you know, sort of around enterprise value of roughly 500 Aussie. Yep. Um, which, yeah, the market cap isn't too far off that today, obviously. It's, um, the market's been pretty shitty over the last 12 months, and ESG stocks, you know, with inflation rates and all those sort of things have been hit. Um, some more than than others, but how do you sort of look at that now? First of all, what was the sort of process back then? We yep. didn't have a Heidelberg, um, you know, perpetual license deal. We didn't have you know DAC. Um, how does that sort of process look? You know, when you when you review it now, to yeah, you know, I'm assuming at some stage you'll look to to run another process. Yeah. 
um, to continue to fund and go harder because you know, the opportunity is so immense. Exactly. And look, at the time we started that process, I think the, the market cap of Calix was mm. maybe 100 or 120 mil. Mm. And uh, we felt that the lime and cement opportunity in and of itself was worth far more than that. Mm. Um, and so to raise capital at head company level to continue to pursue that opportunity was going to be very inefficient. Yeah. Um, and, you know, our, our feel came from having a look at what was happening in the private markets around investment into uh, cement and lime decarbonisation technologies. So you were having rounds in the private markets that were many yeah. multiples of the value of our head company. Um, and so that's why we went, uh, as we did, into the private market to look at a subsidiary, mm-hmm. to um, licence the tech into a subsidiary, uh, have the subsidiary start to be funded and, and ultimately spun out, yeah. I guess. Um, and the other thing is we often get um, uh, questioned about how can we concentrate on so many yeah. things? You know, we've got a lot of opportunities. How can we concentrate on them? Well, it's a, it's a separate company. In, 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 in now, yeah. uh, that my association with that company is, is as chair of that company. Yeah. And so I've got oversight. But that company has built 60 people in the last it's 18 months. It's and got it has, its own CEO. It's got its own CEO. It's got its own capability. Mm. Uh, and not just um, sort of corporate capability. We, we've got the best people from um, all of the engineering houses, ThyssenKrupp, uh, FL Schmidt. We've got some of the best people from the industry itself uh, in terms of ex-cement and lime mm. engineers and technologists because they've been 20 or 30 years working for some of these companies, no, waiting for yeah. them to decarbonise and, and nothing. Uh, and now they can drive it. So we, that company has super capability and, and so uh, that was part of the plan, yeah. you know. So all we needed to do that was a small amount of capital to start to build that capability. Uh, and so uh, the, the actual strategy achieved two things. We were able to get impact funds yeah. to have a look at this entity because uh, a lot of them can't look at private, yeah. uh, at public listed, yeah. uh, listed companies because they've got some very like ultra high net worth people behind them, yeah. but they don't want it, that sort of public exposure. exposure. Yeah. Uh, and and it also that ultimately gave, as we said before, look through value. Yeah. So they came in for seven um, percent of the company for fifteen million euro. Uh, Calix head company will always get thirty percent of the revenues of this yeah. company, regardless of our equity. Uh, so if you do the maths on all of that, it, it sort of um, came out at about three three hundred million euro uh, enterprise value, which, as you've said, yeah. probably about half half a million half a billion Aussie. Um, and so, with that 15 million euro, of which there's still quite some left, by the way, because it, you know, grants. to build capability yeah. and all the grants that we've got and those sorts of things, uh, it it doesn't take a, yeah. a whole lot of capital because we're we're still saying capital light, as we said before. Mm. Um, so 60 people in there now, all of huge caliber, a full corporate structure, just with some oversight from from Calix. Mm. Um, and so, in terms of in terms of focus, focus yeah. that. That company is is, is often on its way. It's often motoring, uh, and so that was the strategy. And and funny enough, as we as we completed that deal, uh, it made it easy for uh, the market in yeah. Australia to have that look through value on that entity. Uh, and lo and behold, uh, people went, oh, okay, that's how so, that's how experts are valuing this yeah, company. So in the space, yeah. you know, impact funds don't invest lightly. They, they employed independent experts and, and have a lot of in, uh, in-house expertise. So they, do, they did about three to four months due diligence mm. on the tech before they invested. 
And so, you know, that in and of itself is a good yardstick to understand how, how the investment community sees the value of the, of the tech, certainly in cement and lime. Yeah. And so, you know, as you, as you sort of uh, were hinting at it, in terms of other opportunities yeah. to do that, uh, you know, basically the, the, the head company value is, is pretty much the cement and lime piece. Yeah, in terms of underpinned by yeah, underpinned yeah, and and yet you know we've we've got a whole iron steel piece which is which and, is emerging which is very exciting and a bunch of other different things exactly right so, and I think that's one of the sort of not um, items of conjecture but yeah struggles of the market around valuing yeah it's it's not a uh, on a multiple and if it is on a multiple it's you know ridiculously expensive and whatnot and that's not yep. the way that we want the market to look at it H- how do you sort of and again you've done a hell of a lot since that first round. Um, with Carbon Direct, how do you sort of look at, you know, from other different peers in the space, mm. you know, particularly around, I, I think, you know, realistically, the, the two um, companies that we you know, look to receive investment are, you know, Lilac um, subsidiary and, and potentially Zesty. Yeah. Um, so h- how do you sort of look at that in terms of the different rounds that have happened there, their advancement, you know, their technology readiness level and whatnot? How do you sort of pin them and what's the sort of best benchmarks to look at that to get, you know, if... Uh, Lilac was 500 Aussie, you know, two years ago. It could be a you know, billion or whatever it is. Yeah. And Zesty, you know, there's this guy who's raised 50 at 200 and we're more advanced. How does that sort of look? Yeah, so um, the, the, the closest benchmark yeah. we have in the in the cement and lime space uh, is a company called Svante, S-V-A-N-T-E. Uh, Svante uh, is using what's called a, a metal organic framework, uh, a MOF uh, for short, uh, to capture the CO2 that's coming off a cement plant. Uh, and they have these MOFs and they capture the CO2 and then they uh, use steam to drive mm. the CO2 back off the MOFs in a concentrated form. Uh, and uh, and then they um, um, condense the water and, and, and have a pretty pure CO2 stream. So it's a really interesting mm. technology, obviously. But uh, all of the steam they need takes energy mm, um, and so and that's expensive so you know our target is to be minimal energy mm. now we, we feel uh, the Svante tech is is obviously a higher energy process route yep. but um, so be it um, now uh, Svante uh, the biggest plant they've ever built on a cement plant is 2,000 ton per annum mm. capacity so for a start uh, the one we've built, which is pilot scale, is still 10 times bigger than that, okay? So 10 times bigger. Um, And Svante, uh, we're looking at about a a TO, they've built a 10,000 tonne per annum plant on a power facility, so they have built uh, something of similar scale, not quite as big. Um, And uh, and so I'd use them as a bit of a benchmark, maybe slightly behind us in terms of the cement application, but that's a reasonable benchmark. and so in late 22, they completed a just north of a 300 million US dollar raise uh, that gave them a post money valuation of greater than a billion. US. US. Yeah. Uh, and so we'd see them as similar in terms of the tech development process. Yeah. Um, and um, the other thing uh, is commercially, yeah, I haven't seen yeah. any agreement signed by them with an end user with yet yeah. with the industry. Uh, and so I, I'm, you know, again, we're not privy because they're a private so, company yeah, to what may be in place. Yeah. Uh, but there's no public um, uh, information there that suggests they've validated their their business mm. model, their commercial you would think, model. And, and again, not not trying to uh, pot Svante or anything like that, but particularly around industry and these you know global cement players, they want to be out there talking about these solutions. Yeah, you know, A to their shareholders mm. and B to you know the yeah. industry and government. So you'd think that if there was something out there. 
um, yeah, the cement players or line players would want to talk about it. You don't have to comment on that, but that's, that's yeah, my look, sort of thought process. Yeah, no, look, all I can comment on is what, what's in the public domain. Yeah. And, and um, you know, and as you say, we're not trying to pot Svante. There, yeah. there'll, be, there'll be areas where uh, Svante could be quite compelling, where energy is very cheap, like mm. US gas is dirt cheap yeah. and electricity is dirt cheap. Look, and there might be some, some, some um, collaboration we could mm. do with Svante for fuel side capture where, where it's combined with lilac yeah. so i'm not trying to use no, no, this as a, as a as a yeah so some days uh, but when it's in, just interesting in terms of the benchmark, in, yeah. in terms of, the benchmark, in terms of yeah. value I mean, Svante have raised over half a billion yeah, sure. to get to where they are today. Mm. You know, uh, in terms of how much we've put into the lilac technology, it's less than a fifth of that. Mm. You know, and and so we've been very successful in in being capital light, using grant funds, yeah. uh, and and being very judicious with the way we we uh, spend the capital. Yet still have accelerated through the tech readiness stage is pretty much similarly. Mm. So so it's a it's an interesting benchmark to use. And so, yeah, if we were to mark to market today what the Lilac technology was worth, it's a very interesting comparison to yeah. make. Um, and, and just on Zesty, is there a sort of thought process there of, um, yeah, it's sort of a number of years behind Lilac. Lilac took mm. a long time. You don't want Zesty to take that long. Um, no. So harder and faster and, and get money in to accelerate that as well? Yeah, harder and faster with Zesty. So um, just to give you an idea, we, we first filed the patent mm. uh, late 2014, yeah. maybe early 2015 for cement and lime. Yeah. Uh, obviously, the, 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 the core process is patented, the particular application. Yeah. We also put a patent around, so there's sort of two layers around e- e- each application. Uh, so by the time we build our first commercial module, which is the Lilac 2 yeah. module, uh, that will be 10 years from, yeah. from patent application to first commercial module build. Uh, and so I've, I've set sort of uh, the company the challenge to halve that. Yeah. Um, now, the patent went in for uh, iron and steel uh, about late 2021. Yeah, it was like around okay. Christmas time. Yeah, so just on Christmas time. Yeah. So that gives us until uh, 2026 to get our first commercial demonstrator built for cement and lime, mm. uh, for iron and steel, sorry. Uh, and so, uh, so what does that mean? Um, 30,000 tonne per annum, single tube, electrically powered, hydrogen powered, uh, built by sometime in 2026 mm. is what I want to do. Um, now, how do I do that? Uh, that will take some capital. Yeah. Um, if I have to wait for grant funding, uh, part of the, uh, the time it took mm. with, with Lilac in, in Europe, um, apply for a grant it takes you know 12 so months and then yeah. six months a decision the and then and, and, and you're in a consortium so decisions have to get made amongst 13 different parties yeah. uh, and of course to go faster you need to be in control of your own destiny a little yeah. more there that's not to say I'm not going to look at grant funding yeah. I'm just going to have it dictate my timeline um, and so what does that mean that means that to progress the iron and steel opportunity, uh, we want to have a look at some capital to to um, build that demonstration yeah. unit. Um, and uh, with iron and steel probably hardly being valued in the head company yeah. uh, at the moment, again, that would say to me, well, why don't we uh, look at Use private capital yeah. and, and look at the same way that we did Lilac in the iron and steel opportunity. Um, and what gives me uh, a lot of confidence there, I guess, is again, if you have a look at benchmark yes, yeah. deals being done in the private sector from impact funds, um, you can see series A, Bs and Cs that are tra- you know, a- along a trajectory for some of these up technologies rounds, yeah. and up rounds uh, that are placing considerable value on these. 
Um, now, I'll have a look, pick a couple. Uh, a company called Boston Metals. Yep. Um, their most recent round in 2023, supposedly when the capital markets are all uh, crap, yeah. uh, they managed to raise 230 million or so US bucks. Uh, and typically the Series C type rounds are at a 20% to 25%. But even if we say a 30% mm. dilution, that places this company at uh, nearly three quarters of a billion dollar US post money valuation. Um, and they're not even out of the lab. Mm. You know, they're, they're, they're not nearly at the scale that we already are with mm. Zesty. We're testing uh, in a unit that's capable of up to 2,000 tonne per annum throughput. Um, and they're probably still, um, you know, a, a, a small fraction of that mm. in and the you're lab. Testing with all the leading players in Australia, which is correct, all, mostly all the leading players in the world, right? Indeed. So yeah. the, the leading iron ore players in Australia yeah. um, were through the heavy industry low emissions transition CRC, of which most are members. We're, we've got a campaign happening now on all the different iron ores in Australia. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, hydrogen uh, um, mm. direct reduction into into a uh, into a green iron. Uh, in our little planet back at Marsh in Victoria, yeah. um, and so we we look at the market, and we you know there, there's uh, Boston Metals that I mentioned. There's mm. um, there's Electra, uh, a company called H Two Green Steel, yeah. <laughs> raised uh, nearly five billion in debt and equity uh, to go do something uh, to go do a green steel project in in Sweden, um, and so even more than cement and lime, yeah. we're seeing valuations at earlier tech readiness level. You know, companies barely out of the lab being being quite because substantial. Such a, such a need for it, and, and it's so early, right? And this is it. Um, the the you know, I think with cement and lime, I've always said, uh, you know, we're probably one of six, maybe seven different technologies that will mm. ever uh, decarbonise cement and lime. So it's a it's a very limited uh, number of players in that space. So you automatically get quite a bit of mm. attention. Well. Iron and steel, if anything, could be even smaller. Mm. Um, there, there are very few different concepts that will ever resolve the CO2 issue for iron and steel. Mm. Um, and to be one of those puts you in a very um, you know, concentrated space. Uh, and so, again, being uh, iron and steel being sort of 8% of global CO2, mm. 7 to 8, uh, alongside cement and lime is one of the biggest industrial emitters. Um, there's a lot of capital that's, being, uh, that's looking to be deployed to mm. resolve the, the CO two issue there, so um, so it's a it's a happy space to be in, which that's what gives me the confidence to to have a look at this mechanism.